everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Idolid. <laughs> Can we please keep that? Oh. Welcome to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, and Merry Christmas. We are releasing this episode on Christmas morning. We're recording a couple weeks in advance. If you're listening to this on Christmas Day, then Merry Christmas. And even if you're listening to this after Christmas Day, we hope you had a great Christmas. And we're doing a special episode today on the incarnation of Jesus, which is ultimately the the reason or the meaning behind the Christmas celebration. And of course, it has a lot of sentimental attachment in the ways that we've celebrated it culturally, which is wonderful and beautiful. But Drew and I wanted to pause this morning and take a look at the deeper theological significance of Christmas. And in our view, a lot of kind of the cultural approach to Christmas overlooks these deeper meanings. You know, when we look at Easter and and how we in America celebrate Easter, I think a lot of us can connect with the spirituality of Easter and the significance of Jesus's resurrection and the empty tomb. But some might find it harder to connect with the spiritual significance and the deep theological meaning behind the Christmas celebration, which is, of course, not just the birth of Jesus, but what that signifies, the the incarnation of God becoming man. It's a deep, profound mystery that has dramatically shaped the theology of the church throughout the throughout the centuries. And so we want to explore that in this episode. So, Drew, why don't you get us kicked off looking at the incarnation? It's interesting, Mick, when it comes to Christmas time, we struggle a little bit where like the best we can come up with is Christmas is the prologue to the cross, which, you know, of course, uh, we when we get to Easter, we'll, we'll talk a lot about the significance of the death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus as well. But I, I would submit to all of us that, that that is not the only purpose of Christmas, but the incarnation itself has tremendous power, just as you were sharing. And ultimately, uh, hopefully our listeners, you guys have, have recognized this, that we have a very, um, we are very strong emphasis of trying to bring everything back to the Trinity and a triune God. But then even as we talk about the life of Jesus, advocating that we see Jesus as a whole person. And I think there has been a trend in theology to separate out the aspects of Jesus' life and build our doctrine on one part of it, oftentimes to the exclusion of the others. And you, you see this. There's different various theories of the atonement that are out there. The most popular one in Protestantism is substitutionary atonement, which I absolutely believe in, and, and we'll, we'll definitely refer to that. Um, there's others where Christus Victor, where it's the, the how Jesus conquered sin, and you, you see some of that with his resurrection and ascension. And, you know, you can kind of go down the list. And for me, I don't think these are mutually exclusive, but instead I think these are different angles for us to understand this incredible mystery and the climax of all history, ultimately. That was an inadvertent rhyme. But I, I think these are these are different angles that by which we understand what, what God has done for us and how we can know God. And if we neglect one, we actually lose part of the richness of what it means to ultimately walk in our new identity in Christ. Uh, and so when we get to the incarnation, it may be surprising to many people that the early church up into, you know, maybe the, the 400s, probably around the time of Augustine, 
placed primary emphasis on the saving work of Christ on the incarnation, maybe even beyond the cross and resurrection at one level. Of course, those are central to the incarnation, and I can get kind of nuanced and complicated. But they really stressed the incarnation of Jesus as a critical aspect of our salvation. And still to this day, that's where the Eastern Orthodox Church would place its primary attention is the incredible mystery and reality that God became man. Um, If you want to get technical, it's the uh, recapitulation theory of atonement. But the idea behind that is that Jesus represents a new Adam. And where all of us have been born into the lineage of Adam, we inherited death and we inherited the traits of our human father, which is sin and rebellion against God and ultimately under the curse of death, and that being the fate of all creation. What Jesus did, God became man and he became the new Adam, and that's where the stress would be. And if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus systematically went through and reversed the decisions that Adam made, and Jesus, because he did that, he paved a way for a new humanity. So what you find is that Jesus was tempted like Adam and Eve were tempted, only Jesus overcame that temptation. This culminates in the cross where as Adam met the fate of death, Jesus also met the fate of death, but then ultimately overcame that through his resurrection in the empty tomb. And now we have the privilege of being in Christ and part of the new Adam and no longer part of the lineage of the old Adam. So it's, it's a really fascinating way of looking at things, but the stress is actually on the incarnation. It's the fact that we as humanity could not overcome the sinful lineage and curse that's on humanity. And so what it took is God becoming one of us and being both fully God and fully man. And the significance of it cannot just be one or the other, but the two being joined together in the person of Jesus is what allows us to participate in the new humanity. And one day, all of creation will, will come into alignment where there is no more sin, no more death, uh, no more stain of the curse, and all of us walking in perfect communion with God and with one another and with creation for eternity, and this being the beginning point of that. So in this frame of reference, it is the, the little town of Bethlehem. It is the silent night. It is God being born into the world that launched the new creation process that was ultimately reached its climatic moment in the resurrection and its consummation in Christ's return. But it began at the incarnation. Uh, so Mick, why don't you take us in? Uh, there's, if you know your church history, you'll know there was a lot of debates on the nature of Jesus that was ultimately settled at the Council of Chalcedon. Mick, what have have been some of your reflections as you consider the Incarnation? Yeah, I like how you frame that, that the Incarnation doesn't have significance only for the doctrine of atonement, but really the whole meta-narrative of Scripture finds its climax, I think, in the Incarnation and the different manifestations of the Incarnation and the significance throughout the Gospels, not just the birth, but then the, the temptations and the miracles and how Jesus interacted with nature and with humanity and then died on the cross, rose again bodily from the dead, ascended bodily to be with the Father, and will return bodily to establish a physical kingdom on the new earth. This idea of the incarnation is central to just about every major Christian doctrine that we have built our faith and lives upon. And you go all the way back, you know, we started this podcast talking about not just kind of philosophy and theology, but we looked at the meta-narrative of Scripture you start back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you have 
you have God with man on a physical earth, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve sharing this fellowship with uh, with God present in, in whatever form there in the garden. And then you have at the fall and the curse, you have this withdrawing of heaven from earth, this separation to where Adam and Eve can no longer be in the presence of God in that way. And all throughout the scriptures, this theme of God wanting to be with mankind and to dwell among them and for him to be our God and for us to be his people really ties the whole narrative together, this idea of fellowship, of proximity. So all throughout the Old Testament, you have these various kind of theophanies where God is physically manifesting himself on earth, whether through the tabernacle or the temple or you know the angel of the Lord at the burning bush and so on and so forth. God kind of breaking into our reality, but they were these manifestations that were very ethereal, the fire and the smoke on Mount Sinai. And it was terrifying. And and the most common reaction to God manifesting himself in the Old Testament was tremendous fear. People drawing away from the presence of God because of how powerful and holy he is. So then when God breaks into the scene again and is born as an infant and steps into our world in that way, the most approachable creature in the universe, you know, a newborn baby. It was a shocking reversal of how he had been revealing himself throughout the Old Testament. And what it was was a recapturing of that union, that union of heaven and earth, that union of God and man, where God was breaking back into our reality in the incarnation and ushering in, like Drew, you were just saying, the heaven coming to earth again. This was the first fruits, right? Jesus stepping into our world and will be consummated when heaven, the new Jerusalem, you know, descends from the heavens and and earth is renewed and it's the new earth and you have heaven and earth married, wed together again and Jesus as its king and God the Father ruling over the new heavens and the new earth. And so, like you said, the the early church was grappling with this mystery. The person of Jesus is this nexus between heaven and earth. He is both God and and man. And anytime you see throughout history cults spin off of Christianity, often it centers on the nature of Jesus. If you pay attention, just about every kind of splinter or faction that has broken off from mainline Christianity has has struggled to grapple with the nature of Jesus, often denying his divinity. And so the early church was wrestling with, you have this man who is clearly a man. And I think maybe in in modern Christian era, we have an easier time thinking of and grappling with Jesus as a deity, as God, as divine. But, you know, imagine you were with Jesus as a man, you know, think of I don't know, your brother or sister, what would it take to convince you that they were Yahweh? You know, if you think of being like James or the Joseph or these other brothers, sisters of Jesus who who mocked him throughout his life and who disbelieved, even in spite of all the miracles and everything, he was claiming to be Yahweh, the one who breathed the world into existence. And that was just a bridge too far for them until after the resurrection, which we talk about probably around Easter. I think James writing the book of James, James, the brother of Jesus, is probably one of the strongest apologetics for the deity of this person, Jesus. You know, again, what would it take you to believe that your brother was the divine, the the one who created everything? 
And, and so the early church was grappling with this. How do we think of this man as God, as divine? And this, Drew already mentioned the, the Council of Chalcedon for a period of about a month around uh, 451 AD. Uh, church fathers, church leaders came together and they basically summarized the doctrine of the incarnation in these five points. And I'll just breeze over them. We're not going to go super in-depth here because we mainly want to talk about the significance, but they affirm that Jesus has two natures, not just had, but has presently two natures, that he is both God and man. Uh, Secondly, each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man. He wasn't some kind of third mixture of the two. The godness wasn't transformed by his humanity and vice versa. Three, each nature remains distinct, which is what I was just saying. Four, Christ is only one person. He's one person with two natures. And this is probably the biggest stumbling point for people intellectually. And it's it's one of those mysteries up there with the Trinity. How is God one, yet three? This incarnation that God, that Jesus was fully man, fully God, but still one person. And then that fifth point here, that the things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ, meaning his physical humanity hungered and thirsted and was tired, and yet his divinity never hungers, never thirsts, and never tires. He had to learn obedience through what he suffered in his humanity, but in his divinity, he does not have to learn obedience or learn anything. He probably, he had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to walk in his humanity, yet in his divinity, he created all things, sustains all things, and holds all things together. And both of those realities are true simultaneously. Now, that's a mystery. How do you hold those two together in tension? I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. In the same way that Einstein struggled with quantum mechanics, it's outside of our reality. It's outside of our day-to-day, how we interact with the world. And yet, this is what the church has affirmed throughout the centuries of the person of Jesus. One of the church fathers around the time of Chalcedon, maybe a century or two after, Maximus the Confessor, he was reflecting and really built his whole theological system on the incarnation and the identity of Jesus. He speculated, and I'm not—I'm not sure if I agree. <laughs> it's one of those—it's just an interesting thing to think about. But he speculated that the incarnation would have happened even if there had been no sin. His point behind that is God in creating the world. His goal has always been that His creation would be united to Him. And what sin did, and at least Maximus's point of view, is sin turned the incarnation into a rescue mission. And so God's intention has always been to unite humanity to himself, and that, that's always been God's plan in creation. But our sin is what brought the barrier, brought the separation. And so it meant that the incarnation had to be that, that Jesus was crucified and rose again and rescued us from the power of sin so that then we might participate in God's purposes and plans. So, you know, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that I I endorse that point of view fully, but it's just an interesting reflection to see, for those of us who've completely minimized the incarnation, a different point of view from believers in the past that just show what weight they put on the significance of the incarnation. At the very least, as I celebrate Christian, I realize there's a profound truth, profound significance to the fact that God would become one of us, that he might save us and restore us. And you know, this year, as I've, been, as I've been reflecting on Scripture, I've been struck at how committed God is to working in and through humanity. And you see that from the very beginning in the garden, as Mick, you shared, 
that God intended that mankind would partner with him to cultivate the garden and extend his purposes and dominion on the earth. I don't, you know, I, I would have, if I were God, I would have given up after sin and just said, all right, time for a plan B. Yet God is so committed to his purpose that he would actually become humanity so that we might, we might still have it. And you see all the way you go down to the end of Revelation and what do you see? You see humanity walking in union with God and the garden restored on the earth. And uh, it just, to me, that, that blows me away that God would be so committed to us that he would become one of us, that he might save us and get his plan on track to work through us. It's just, it's amazing. It's humbling. It's profound. And the, the power then of the incarnation is that we can participate in God's plan for humanity as he always intended. If you read the New Testament, I, I like to reflect, where are we as a believer living in modern America? And I think the answer would be, I am now in Christ. If I am with Jesus, I am in Christ. And when I consider the cross and the resurrection, I, I'm reminded that my judicial standing before God has been reversed, that I am no longer guilty in the eyes of God for my sin. And that's, you know, that's been the huge significance of Martin Luther, and rightfully so, has been a dominant theme in theology for the last, I don't know, 500 years, almost 500 years now. So amen to that, and that's that significance. But when I think of the incarnation, I also recognize, yes, my judicial standing is different, but me as a person ontologically, like the, the reality, the deepest reality of my existence is that I am now in Christ. That might be a little harder to wrap our brain around that I am not guilty, but it's not just that I'm not guilty. It's also that I am now in Jesus, and that's where I'm found. I'm part of a new humanity, and as long as I'm in this body, it's a journey of me learning what it means by the Spirit to be molded into the image of Jesus, and as we all know, that's um, a process of steps forward and steps backward, but my ultimate destiny, my ultimate where I will spend my eternity is that I get to, because of Jesus, I get to be in Christ and ultimately part of this new humanity Uh, which was always God's design with his creation. And if that does not cause us to worship, I don't know what else will. And it's not, it it is not the incarnation or the cross. It's the incarnation to the cross, to the resurrection, to the ascension, and eventually to Christ's return. And when we see the whole person of Jesus, man, we just, every one of those elements is so much richer than we think it is. And I I just am convinced we're just scratching the surface of what it means to walk with Jesus. And as we get revelation on who he is and who we are in him, it's, you know, as I'm, as I sing these Christmas carols, it's like, what a profound act of worship, just tasting just a glimpse of our identity in God. Yeah. Another way to say it could be that the logical current or the logical progress of the universe has been toward incarnation from the very beginning. That if God's intent in creating human humanity in the context of the cosmos as we understand it, was ultimately for fellowship and for the glory of God, then our ability to relate with him is paramount. And his magnificence, his grandeur, his infinite wisdom, his omnipotence, his omniscience, in some ways creates a barrier because we are so much lower in terms of uh, we are created beings and he's creator. So we can stand in awe and stand back in worship, which is right and appropriate. And at the same time, his intention from the beginning was that we would also be able to relate with him. And so logically, the incarnation makes sense in that flow. When you look at, again, the flow of scripture and the meta narrative of the Bible, 
that God would become accessible in that way and relatable and approachable and still possessing all that cosmic power and yet being understandable in the sense that he is a human and has been tempted in all the ways that we are and and had to become man in order to become, you know, going back to soteriology and the doctrine of salvation, had to become man to become that sacrifice. You look at the theme of blood throughout the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 3, and the propitiation for sin through the shed blood of these sacrifices, had to become the perfect sacrifice, and yet had to be God in order to uh, as Drew was saying, be separate from original sin, the sin of Adam that was passed down throughout the generations. You know, as I reflect personally on the incarnation and, you know, to take this down maybe a notch from pure theology and as I reflect on, you know, my kind of 15 years, 20 years now of trying to follow God, when I have come to these deep places of pain or questioning or wondering or difficulty or disappointment, It's the nearness of God. It's the ability to actually relate with God that has tethered me in in a real way. And it's difficult, you know, as I'm talking to unbelievers at times, you know, this, this kind of experiential knowledge of God that we have is difficult to relate to somebody who's thinking kind of purely cerebrally about, you know, the divine. But this idea that God became man and now indwells us by his spirit, but that's just a deposit, a down payment of what's to come, that we will relate with him, commune with him in a very substantive and tangible way, that we can do that now by his spirit is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion and philosophy that is just cerebral, that we can actually participate in the divine and that was made possible through the incarnation. I was thinking back, Drew, I believe you were there, Amsterdam in 2016. We had a gathering of, of our kind of leaders across our movement. My wife and I were at a particularly dark place in our kind of journey, and we'd been pastoring a church, and it was coming to a difficult end. And, and I was just struggling and grappling with some deeper theological questions and really was probably depressed in some ways, even, you know, clinically, it was never diagnosed, but was just in a dark place. And... We were in our hotel room in Amsterdam. It was the middle of the night. I was jet lagged, but I was also just laying awake. And I had this this thought or this sense of invitation from God to get up and to pray. And so I didn't want to wake up my wife. So I went into the bathroom and, and just prayed and had this incredibly powerful, tangible sense of God's presence that met me in this this very dark place. I had about 30 minutes or an hour there on my knees just weeping and God meeting me. And I was, I felt this kind of open door to vent my pain and frustration. And I found myself asking all the why questions. The thought that hit me was the cross. And and what I felt like God was speaking to me was from Hebrews, this is why I walked in your shoes. This is why I endured what I endured. This is why I allowed, you know, the nails to be driven through my hands and feet was to, because one day I knew that you would be in this place and need comradeship, would need somebody who understands what it's, what it means to be fully human and yet is victorious over these difficulties. So in that place, finding both the familiarity, a God who understands but, you know, misery loves company, but that's not enough to simply have somebody who understands and is also going through difficulty. Also somebody who has overcome. So it brings both the the comfort of relationship, but also the hope of the power 
of somebody who went through hell and back and is an overcomer. And for me, that's where just in my own kind of spiritual formation and walk with God, the incarnation it has gone from just a doctrine or a thought to reality in, in more ways than one. But to me, that was kind of a, a crystallizing moment, a distilled moment where the reality of God's incarnation, that he is fully human and yet fully God, was incredibly meaningful and significant. Nick, it's so good. Uh, you know, as we reflect on all this, let it lead us to worship. I'll close with this thought, you know, as I take these concepts and, and bring it down just in my own life. You know, what I love about the incarnation is the scandal of Jesus is that we claim that he is real. And I think throughout the ages, especially in that time, if Christians had been content to reduce God to a concept, then probably wouldn't have had nearly the challenges that the church did. But like you said, um, we believe that God became a real man, and we believe that he really died, and we believe that he really rose from the dead. And the reality of that and the significance of that is if I believe this is not just a mythology or spiritual concept, but this is history, then history means that this is real for my own life. And history means that this is an invitation to understand that this is reality and not just some kind of vague sense of spirituality or whatever whatever we call that. And, uh, you know, so for me, the, the meditation on I'm in Christ, like this is my identity. This is my destiny. This is who I am. This is more real to me than whatever label the world tries to put on me, whatever way of viewing the world, uh, whatever metrics our world gives us for what life is meant to be, what success is meant to be, what purpose is meant to be. Jesus has offered us through his incarnation and through his death, through his resurrection, he has offered us a, a completely different way of being human, completely different way of living. And I can, I can be part of that. That's the invitation given to us. And I'm so grieved in my own life where I fall for a lesser story, where I, I, I place a different identity on myself through the categories of this world. And I just, I look at the world, the angst, the anxiety, the hopelessness. And I know we're all tempted by that and deal with that. And so no, no shame. I've certainly been there time and time again, but um, at a much deeper level, my story is that I'm in Christ. And that's only possible because he became one of us. And the extent to which that shapes us, and I would say all the more so in chaotic years like 2020, all the more reason to reflect on that rather than the darkness of this world, the significance of a what feels very vulnerable, helpless, child was actually the very thing that saves us. And I find at times as I walk with God, I feel very vulnerable, helpless. I don't feel like I have a lot to offer in the face of the darkness of this world. But that's precisely where God specializes in the way that he moves. And that's our identity. So let's end with that today. As you celebrate Christmas, don't discount just how powerful it is that God became one of us, that he might save us, and ultimately that he might unite us back to him. So thanks for tuning in. May you be in wonder over this royal infant as we celebrate this Christmas morning. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Ideology.